You know, our world is full of self-help books out there. Some are, are some that are related to maybe our vocation and some really good things in that, like there's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, uh, The Old School, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Some of those have some very useful things for our vocation and just different uh, areas of life. But then you start in some of the self-help books uh, over the course of, of, of recent history, you start seeing them trend more towards, okay... All of, the, all of what you need and all of what need, you, you need for satisfaction in life and purpose in life can be found within you, and then it moves on to just flat-out New Age-type stuff, right? But then some of them obviously have some effectiveness in different areas and different uh, portions of our vocation in life, but then some of those things, we're barking up, and unfortunately, humanity, they're looking for purpose, looking for significance, and they start barking up the wrong tree of thinking they're going to find it within themselves. But when we come to this passage today, we see this incredibly powerful phrase of Christ in you. And this is far from being some sort of a self-help sort of phrase. This is, of course, we know to be the source that we need, the source for the entirety of our life, not only for salvation and forgiveness, but truly for what Jesus Christ promises us of, of, of source of satisfaction and purpose in life. Is far more than self-help, and guess what it is as well? He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We'll get to that a little bit later in the sermon, but Christ in us is our hope, our certainty. Remember, the Bible uses hope almost completely 180-degree difference from the way we use it in our common vernacular when we hope something will happen. When it talks about hope in Scripture, it is a certainty of a future reality, and it says that Christ in us is our proof that truly one day when we pass from this earth, we will spend eternity in a glorious, unimaginable heaven in the very presence of Jesus Christ. So we see here as we come in the midst of this sermon series in the book of Colossians, we come now to verses 24 through 29, the end of chapter 1, and it says this, Paul, remember Paul is writing and he's writing from a Roman prison. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from which God has given to me to you to fulfill the word of God. And what did he do? What is the heart of this ministry of his? It is the mystery. What mystery? The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, that is, his followers, the followers of Jesus Christ. No, it is not a special class of Christian, but the Bible clearly says if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint, the priesthood of the believers. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which, we, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And what did they do based upon this incredible mystery, based upon this incredible stewardship of which Paul has been given? We see that he is writing with joy in the midst of chains in a Roman prison. Why? Because they've been given this mission, the same mission that's not just a special mission for Paul and his cohorts, but it is the mission that all Christians and all churches just like this have been given, which is this. It says, him we preach. Him, that is Jesus, we preach. 
warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, Paul says, I labor, striving, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. I love how he just piles up those words there. As he's been given this incredible mission, we see this sort of wonderful coming together of not only his hard work, but his hard work under the great power of Jesus Christ. If it were not for the power of Jesus Christ, his work, his effort would be fruitless. But he says, to this end of preaching Jesus and presenting men perfect in Christ Jesus unto the Father, he says he works, he labors, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Lord God, as we come now this morning and as we come to this passage, as as we've looked at this entire uh, series here in the book of Colossians, which you wrote by the hand of Paul, Lord, which you have delivered unto us and the words of it, the truth of it rings just as true now as it did 2,000 years ago. Lord, as we come, we just ask that you would help us to see the great application of this personally in our lives that we might go out just as Paul did, brave, Brave, taking the good news of the gospel to the world that desperately, desperately, desperately needs it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the first thing that we see here is very simply suffering for Christ. Suffering for Christ and his church. Again, in verse 24 and 25, it says, I now rejoice for my sufferings. What a radical statement in and of itself. I rejoice for my sufferings. How often do we go around saying that? Whatever the sufferings in our life may be, how often do we go around saying that I suffer for for, for whatever it may be and I find joy in it? I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. He's speaking, he's writing. Remember, he's writing to the church at Colossae. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. He says, first of all, again, I rejoice in my sufferings. He finds himself in the midst of that Roman prison in a dank, dark cell, undoubtedly, wondering if he will ever get out, but yet he still has joy. He still has joy. And he's telling them that this life as a minister of Jesus Christ, and he's not talking specifically about vocational ministry, although that's which you could somewhat categorize Paul as the vocational minister. I am one of the same, but we are all ministers in Jesus Christ. And so Paul's lesson is to all of us, not just to me, not just to others like myself that are vocational ministers, but we are all ministers. And he says, I, I, I rejoice in my sufferings. And he's telling them this is difficult, yet rewarding work. And it's not just some type of rewarding work. It's not just rewarding work that can be lined up with other types of rewarding work, but this is what we as as human beings are meant for. We are meant for this, to be on mission for God, to find our joy and our hope in Christ and to be on mission for him. So he tells them, no varnish on this, it's difficult, but man, it's worth it. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And he says, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What a really interesting phrase that is. You know, Jesus Christ, even back in his earthly ministry, said that if the world hated him, they will hate you as well, his followers. 
John 15, 18, if the world hates you, he says this very specifically, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So this is right on, on the precipice of him sending out some of his followers during his earthly ministry to go preach the ministry of repentance, saying that the Messiah is here. Turn from your old life and turn to the Messiah. And he said, just so you know, as they were discouraged in the midst of their ministry, the world, if they're turning on you, it's because they're turning on me. It's to be expected, Jesus says. He doesn't say, okay, now that you know, it's going to be easy. But he says, it is to be expected. But when we again line it up with all that we get and all that it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that we are born again, we are forgiven, we're cleansed, we're blameless, we find joy and hope in him. We have the abundant life in Jesus Christ, as he promises in John 10.10, and we have a certainty of heaven. All that we are meant to be, it is well worth it. So again, he says, just know if the world turn on me, it will turn on you. They are, you are my followers. In fact, 2 Peter 3.12 says this. Again, Peter writing, writing under the inspiration of God. He says that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, in our context, we know that contextually that's different across our world in different spans of time. We know, obviously, first century Christians, their persecution looks different than 21st century American Christians. We know that many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world suffer the same type of persecutions going on even now that first century Christians faced. And I hope we're praying for them. I challenge you to be praying for our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. But even here in America, and we live in a greater sense of freedom, a greater degree of freedom, there will be some type of persecution and some type of suffering there should be if we are living godly for Christ Jesus and we are living out there bold for the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it is that you get passed over for a particular promotion. I wouldn't think that that sort of thing would happen all the time, but maybe you do. Maybe there's just something about your particular boss or who might elevate you that might say you might not get elevated for a particular thing. Maybe it's just as you want to be forthright in sharing your faith that others try to challenge you about that, about sharing your faith in the workplace or your school, and you have to kindly, kindly always, kindly, because that is a witness, but firmly say, no, I have the right to do this. I do have the right to do this. And so maybe it takes that form here in our context, but it says the Bible says all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You can almost say, you could almost insert here and speculate that Paul's statement in this context was, Jesus took the blows meant for me. Therefore, I will take the blows meant for him. Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, he took our punishment that we deserve because of sin. And what it meant, he took it upon himself, his love put him there and hung him there upon the cross. And there as he hung upon the cross, he took the totality of the weight of human sin and became the sacrifice for us that we might have freedom and forgiveness in Jesus. And so Paul gladly, gladly identified with Christ. Folks, are we so enamored with Christ that we are willing to identify with him in any way, including in some of the most difficult ways of being persecuted for him? Are we so enamored with Christ that we'll identify with him in any way that we can? You know, it's an unfortunate and sad thing, but I think my suspicion is for many quote-unquote Christians, and I say quote-unquote Christians because oftentimes we know that people can call themselves Christians, but they're not true followers of Jesus Christ. 
Maybe they believe they're a Christian because they've attended church all their life or maybe because their relatives have attended church all their life. That does not make one a Christian. One can attend church their entire life and not be a Christian because a Christian is one who has personally surrendered their life unto the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come in, he has made them new, and they are born again. But my suspicion is that for many Christians, quote-unquote Christians, Christ, as weird and as sad as it is, Christ becomes almost secondary in their quote-unquote Christianity because Christianity for them has become more of a social construct than devotion to Christ. Social construct than a devotion to Christ. You know, I like country music, and I know there's groans growing on across the congregation here. Oh, how can you like country music? I like some country music. But I'll tell you this, one of the, I think, one of the simple but yet sad sort of uh, little veins woven throughout country music is you see this sort of conflation of, you know, uh, sort of America and partying and going to church on Sunday morning just sort of all conflated together. And the saddest part of that is not the, the partying on Saturday night. It's the idea that just church just becomes sort of the social construct. It's sort of just part of society. Rather than when we come to church, it is about we're coming on Sunday as we are living for Jesus Christ, Monday through Saturday. We're out there on the front lines of leading people to Christ, uh, sharing the good news of the gospel, uh, walking in love and truth with those around us that desperately need guidance and hope and they need Jesus in their life. And we come back together on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or maybe throughout the week when we gather together in small groups and we get together for coffee, we are coming together to strengthen one another, to encourage one another as we are going back out into the world sharing the good news of the gospel. That's what it means to be part of a local church. That's what it means to have Christ at the center of our Christianity. So he says, And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. For the sake of his body, which is the church, he not only identified with Christ, he joy in his sufferings because it was an identity with Christ, but it was also joy in his suffering for others to whom he had dedicated his life. Now, I know Paul's circumstances ultimately are different than most of ours. He was truly an apostle. He was truly a sent out one. He was one that was going into these first light areas, these places that had never seen the gospel. They never heard of Jesus. If you said Jesus, they want to know if that was a person, place, or a thing. He was going, they, he was going out and spreading the good news of the gospel. And he had invested in the lives of these people, whether it be a, a, any city in the known world or whether it be a city like Colossae. He had invested in these people. But in the same way, we have to ask ourselves as part of this local body of Christ and as part of those people that you know through work or your neighborhood or school or your family, are we investing in them? Are we praying for them? Are our hearts broken for them? They're not just people that we sort of pass on the street and we wave at or we pass in the hall or we talk about football with during the week, but are they people that our hearts are broken for them in the same way that Christ's heart is broken for them? We need to be humble servants of them, just as he says in verse 25. Paul says again that I am a steward of the house, or I'm a steward of this ministry. He says it starting in verse 25, of which I became a minister. And again, this isn't a vocational minister. This is a minister in the sense that we are all called to minister to others. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from which God has given me for you to fulfill 
the word of God. A steward is one in the sense here that it's written as one who manages the household of a master. What an incredible change in Paul. What an incredible change from the headstrong, power-hungry, ruthless uh, Pharisee in waiting that Paul was. He was a young Pharisee that was climbing the ladder of that establishment of the day. And what do we see in absolute 180 and where he says now, I am a servant of Christ and a servant of his church. You see, in the same way, we are to be servants of one another. You know, the the Bible says that the spiritual gifts that we've been given, as the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life, he gives each, each one of us at least one gift, not to say, hey, look at what I have, or to use it for our own benefit, but it's to serve others in the church. And guess what happens if all of us are being selfless and we are being servants of everyone else in the church? Guess who's taken care of? I'm taken care of as well. We're all taken care of. But when we get that uh, sort of equation flipped on its head, when we say, I'm taking care of myself, I'm taking care of number one, and we're looking just like the rest of the world, then no one within the church is being served and taken care of. But when we turn it outward and we're serving one another, just as Paul served the church and Christ ultimately served the church, everyone, everyone is taken care of. So the first thing that we see, again, is suffering for Christ and his church. Secondly, he says he is a minister of this great mystery. Starting in verse 26 and 27, it says this, this ministry, he fulfills the word of God, this long-standing promise of God. What promise is? The mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So when you look back upon the generation upon generation upon generation of God's people, the Hebrew people, there was a foreshadowing of what was coming. Those things, whether it, be the, whether it be the temple, whether it be the tabernacle, whether it be the animal sacrifices that happened within to, to temporarily do away with the sins they committed, all of those things were a type. They were a shadow of the great coming future reality. And what was that? It's now been revealed to his saints, all those who are followers of God through Jesus Christ. To them, verse 27, to them God willed his, his, made his will known, which are, which are the riches of his glory, this mystery among the Gentiles. So it once was the incubator. The incubator was the Hebrew people, but now it has been revealed to all those, the entirety of the world. And what is this mystery? Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, that mystery of the Gentiles that has been revealed to the Gentiles, which is Christ among you, the hope of glory. The first thing that we see in the midst of that is not the mystery itself, but an incredible reality rotating around that ministry is that it has now been revealed to the entirety of the world. Gentiles, if you remember, is, were all of those non-Hebrew people. So in technicality, speaking of the Gentile people directly, those who are non-Hebrews, but also in the Bible, Gentiles in the New Testament is often used as sort of a colloquialism for all of those who were non-believers, non-believers. Either way you slice it, it has now been revealed to all people, all people. What an incredible turn in the history, this Hebrew period of, of incubation of this great reality of redemption through Jesus Christ has now been revealed to all mankind. And that is Jesus Christ has come. The Messiah has come. Ephesians 3.8 says this, To me, who am less than the least of the saints, this grace was given. So Paul said, I was one who was in absolute opposition to Jesus Christ, but now even to me it was given. 
this grace which is given to me that I should preach among the Gentiles, that is the entirety of the world, not just the Hebrew people, but everyone, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The second thing in this great phrase that we see is that Jesus, the Messiah, saves us and he lives in us. Do you understand the incredible reality of that? We often say that our God that we follow isn't some sort of distant, aloof, um, nebulous power beyond the nether region somewhere. And we believe in him almost like we would believe in sort of a new age mysticism of the, of the power of the universe. Nor is it a, 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 an actual being of which we could wrap our minds around, but it is incredibly distant and aloof from us. And the best that we can do, the best that we can do is hope at the end of our life that we've done enough good things that he'll have mercy upon us. That's what some religions believe. He might have mercy upon us. No, what he clearly tells us is that he's not distant and aloof, but that he has sent his son, his only son, Jesus Christ, stepped out of heaven, wrapped himself in flesh, ultimately died for our sins, the, the, paying the penalty that we should have paid on our, on our own. The, he, he, he died and he rose again, ascended into heaven, proving exactly who he says he was. And guess what? You want to talk about how intimate that relationship is. He doesn't just leave us on our own twisting in the wind, but it says Christ in us. Christ comes to live in us. One of the most familiar verses, if you've grown up in church, one of the most familiar verses of which we probably memorized since we were children, and it's one of the most familiar for a reason. It captures this incredible truth of the gospel. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ in us. Gosh, there's no greater truth than that. We aren't just sort of following some sort of distant deity and we're hoping we kind of figure it out the rest of our life. But Jesus Christ not only died for us, but he says that he comes to live within us. He comes to live within us. Not only that, but Jesus Christ is our hope of glory. He is our certain hope of heaven. Remember I mentioned just a few moments ago, and it's a common theme throughout the book of Colossians, so we'll probably be hitting on it just about every week. But hope in the Bible is just almost a complete 180 from the way that we use hope in our common society, in our vernacular, modern vernacular. We say hope so, like, you know, maybe if things kind of fall right and the dominoes fall right, it'll work out in my favor. But hope in Scripture is a certainty. It is a certainty of a future reality. And that's exactly what we see. Jesus Christ, him living in, in us, him coming and taking up residence in us is our certainty of our future eternity in heaven. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is a living hope. It is a certain future to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. It's an inheritance in heaven. It is not an inheritance of this earth. Inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And based upon all this incredible truth, 
Paul gladly sacrificed his life to identify with Jesus Christ. He gladly underwent persecution as difficult as it was because he identified with Christ and he wanted to be a steward and serve the church of which he dedicated his life. He did it all because of this incredible mystery, which was not only that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came to forgive us of sin, but he is taking up residence in our life. And based upon that, he and those that went with him, what did they do? What did they do, and what is our mission, the same mission that they had? 28, it says, him we preach, Jesus we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And he says, to this end, I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. First thing that we can't gloss over is he says, him we preach, we preach Jesus, whether it be formal preaching like this, whether it be the sort of proclaiming that we see, because that's exactly the way that word can be translated as well, whether it be you proclaiming in your place of work, your neighborhood, your family, your school, we preach, we proclaim Jesus. We don't proclaim self-help. We don't proclaim your best life now. Guess what? Even your testimony is a powerful tool, but it is a powerful tool that ultimately should lead to Jesus Christ. And you say, my testimony of my life is that Jesus changed my life. Him we preach, warning every man. Part of what we do is we are to warn them, warn them of the consequence of not giving their life into the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not just a loving God, but he is a just God that must judge sin. Do you realize that Jesus warned during his earthly ministry, he warned more about hell than he did wax on about heaven. Heaven was incredible as well. It was an incredible reality, but you know he spent more of his time warning those, telling them to repent, repent and avoid coming destruction. We preach Jesus, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. It pierces. It pierces right through excuses. It pierces right through, through lies that people have been telling themselves about how they're going to find happiness and joy and satisfaction in life. The Bible pierces right through that and tells the truth in love, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We preach Jesus and we preach him with the word of God. Because guess what? More than, far more than any eloquent words that you could ever come up with, and you might say to yourself, gosh, I'm not eloquent enough to share Christ with my friend. That is not about your eloquence. It is about proclaiming Jesus Christ and using the word of God to do it. It is the word of God that has the power. You could say, you know what? I am an uneloquent. I am a stuttering mess. I couldn't do it. There's no way I could do it. But guess what? You could stutter through that whole presentation, and if you share the word of God, and you share Jesus Christ with them, and you are doing it with with passion, and they know that he has changed your life, I guarantee you that's going to have more effect than what I could do or what any other preacher could do in their life, I guarantee you, because it's the word of God, it's your testimony, and it is preaching Jesus. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect. That word is speaking of being mature and complete like Jesus Christ, like Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29, oftentimes, unfortunately, we divide these two verses, but they go together. 
Romans 8, 28 and 29 says this. 28 will often uh, recognize, will be very familiar to us. 29 will probably be familiar to you as well because I uh, quote this so often. 28 and 29 together says this. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's speaking of believers in Jesus Christ. Guess what? He doesn't say that all things are going to be good in your life, but he says all things, even the difficult things, are not a surprise unto God. Even the very difficult things in your life, God's wisdom that's just higher than ours and his ways that are higher than ours, he is weaving those things together in your life to bring you to a place of maturity. And what is that measure of maturity? It says here in verse 29, For whom, that is the Father, for whom he, that is the Father, foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So if he he foreknew you and you're a a believer in Jesus Christ, guess what? He is, again, not leaving you out there twisting in the wind. It is not entirely, it is not up to you whether you're growing in maturity. He is bringing you to a place of maturity. Yes, we have responsibility in it as we are dedicating our lives to God's calling and what he is calling us to do, but it is ultimately him who is sanctifying us. Again, it says, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that is Jesus Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What is that standard? What is that standard of maturity as we as a church are are seeing people not only come to follow Jesus Christ, that's the first part of our mission statement, leading people to follow Jesus Christ, but also to live like Jesus. We see that standard in 1 John 2, verses 5 and 6. Look on the screen here. It says, but forever keeps his word, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we're in him. If we are living out his word, if we are living out the word of God, that's how we know that we've been changed. That's how we know that we've been born again. He who says he abides in Jesus, in him, ought himself also to walk just as he, just as Jesus walked. So what is our mission? Again, and we capture it in this mission statement in our church that we are leading people to follow Jesus. We can't make anyone follow Jesus Christ, but we can lead them to the place by planting the seed and sharing the faith of of the gospel. We are leading people to follow Jesus, and we are helping them, just as it says here, we are helping them mature them. We are helping one another to grow up to be like Jesus. Even right now, during this, during this sermon, we have a, a few of our teenage young ladies that are meeting together, one who has just recently given her life to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're meeting together to do some intense discipleship right now. They're helping one another grow in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the standard to live like Jesus In verse 29, Paul says, this is our mission. This is the mission of his team, his traveling team, and this is the mission of all believers in all churches throughout time and eternity. That is the mission, and guess what? He does it, not in his own power, but in the power of God. To this end, he says, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. We see this incredible coming together, this incredible balance of us striving and working for the Lord Jesus Christ, striving and working to share our faith, but knowing all the time that our labor is in vain if it is not imbued with, it is not empowered by the very power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is based not upon our effort, but God's power. So if we live and if we walk and if we work in his power, we are called to labor, though. Labor means to work to exhaustion, 
strive is almost an athletic term to agonize, to agonize that last mile of a marathon, to work, to work for that. But we do it all. It's fruitless effort unless it is the very energy of God, the very power of God. That is what that Greek word is in the original is energo, energo. We see energy in it, incredible power, incredible power of God. You know, the greatest power source in all of our universe, the greatest natural power source in all of our universe is known as hypernovas. Hypernovas, incredibly large stars that actually absolutely dwarf our sun, the sun of our solar system. 10 seconds of an explosion of a hypernova is equal. 10 seconds is greater than the, than the power that our sun will put off in 10 billion years. Incredible power of these hypernovas. It is equivalent to the power, as best estimate as we can, of 10 trillion, trillion, billion nuclear weapons. Incredible power. You see, this illustrates, though, the power that we have in Jesus Christ. We don't go out on our own. Lest we think we walk out of this church now and we want to share our faith with someone and we go on our own and it's up to us about how eloquent we are and how well we choose our words. It is absolutely not. It is the word of God that divides hearts and it is the power of God that goes before us. Then we end in this way with a sort of a, a little turn of phrase, a little saying, a little poem maybe. It's kind of a negative one, but let this not be the case for us. Written by a Christian artist, it says, The church has buildings, but little boldness. The church has numbers, but little nerve. The church has comfort, but little courage. The church has status, but little spirit. And finally, it says, the church has prestige, but little power. Let that not be said of us. May this church, may Metropolitan Baptist Church and its members within, may we be people that tap in daily to the very power of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today, and we do ask that as we come, that that we would go from this place, not in our own power, but in yours. And Lord, may you help us as believers in Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, we rob us of the most exciting thing. We rob ourselves of the most exciting thing about being a Christian, which is sharing our faith planting the seed, whether a door is slammed in our face, whether we're rejected at work, whether we get a scoff, or whether somebody's heart is broken and they come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's exhilarating. It's exhilarating. But Lord, we don't do it ultimately for us. We do it for those people that desperately need Jesus. And even more than that, we do it for your glory and your honor. God, if there's someone here today as we come to this time of a response here in just a moment. If there's someone here today whose heart is stirring for Jesus Christ, may they not leave this place without surrendering their life unto him. In his name we pray, amen.